Got time for a quick story. Early 2015, found out that Mike and the Mechanics were going to be performing in Milwaukee, further south here in Wisconsin. And thought, hmm, I wonder if I can get an interview with one of the members of the band. I thought, well, maybe not. Well, it turns out a couple years later, if you were listening to the first part of this Genesis series of Got Time for Our Quick Story podcast, I did get to interview Mike Rutherford from Mike and the Mechanics and, of course, also Genesis. Back in 2015, I thought, you know what? I'm going to try to get an interview with the opening act for that concert, Daryl Sturmer, who is a longtime guitarist for Phil Collins, longtime touring guitarist for Genesis. And that interview got set up and was a fascinating interview talking about performing live on the same stage as Mike and the Mechanics, working with Mike Rutherford over all of the years, all of the decades. His style of playing over the years, it was a really, really interesting interview. Three years later, Phil Collins went on tour in America, resumed touring. And before his concert, a little bit west of Eau Claire in Minneapolis in October of 2018, before that concert, thought, well, I'll reach out to Daryl Sturmer once again, do an interview before that concert. And he agreed and had another great interview talking about his work with Phil Collins. And so I thought for part two of this Genesis series here in Got Time for a Quick Story. I'd combine both interviews with Daryl Sturmer, the first from early 2015, the second from the autumn of 2018. And you can listen to both of them right now. Two chats with Daryl Sturmer, who is a Wisconsin native as well. Take a listen. We're talking with Daryl Sturmer, who is going to be opening up for Mike and the Mechanics on March 19th in Milwaukee at the Paps Theater. Daryl, a uh, a fellow Wisconsin resident and, and performing... In your basically in your in your hometown, uh, for starters, how'd you get hooked up on this particular tour? I mean, there's obviously the Genesis connection, the Mike Rutherford connection, but how specifically did did you uh, become the opening act? Well, it's funny because I was actually doing a radio interview in Milwaukee some months ago, and they said that Mike Rutherford was going to be calling in around the same time, like somewhere in between. So he said it would be great if you talked with Mike. So I I was once Mike. I uh, got on the phone and on the radio, and we started talking. And um, he was talking about this Genesis box set that was coming out. This was months ago. And then, then he started talking about this U.S. tour that he's putting together. And I just, off the cuff, said, do you need an opening act? And he <laughs> said, do you know anybody? <laughs> so I said, yeah, how about me? And then, so nothing was said about that. It was just kind of a joke. And then months later... And months before this tour actually started, um, I got a call from the management and said, I'm sitting here with Mike Rutherford, and we're wondering if you'd like to open the show. And I thought about, you know, for a minute, and then I said, well, what would it entail? And he said, well, it would be basically uh, you opening the show as a solo act. And I said, you mean with my band or with my keyboard player? He said, no, just you. Hmm. <laughs> so that's how it came about. And uh, so what I, what I do is I actually have, a drum, bass, and keyboard tracks that I've done and put them on my MacBook Air, and I actually do it as a solo act. Okay. What, That's what, how it actually came about. Inter- literally, a, literally a solo performance. What uh, songs are you performing the, on, uh, on the opening acts thus far? Well, I'm, uh, I'm not going to do any Genesis songs. I'm, I'm going to do a, a, a few of my tunes and a, a Peter Gabriel song and a Jeff Beck song. And I did see in one of the set lists, I think, was it Shock the Monkey, I think uh, you played, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong? 
Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, I'm doing Shot the Monkey, and I'm doing a song called Freeway Jam by Jeff Beck. And then the other three songs are written by me. What What's the uh, audience reaction thus far to your set? It's great. You know, that's what I'm, you know, when I, when I thought about doing this, I thought, I wonder how the audience will react to just me standing up there playing. And for some reason, it's going over very well. They're very responsive. I do do a little bit of talking to the audience because I've done this before when I would be doing, say, guitar seminars with, say, 50 to maybe 75 people. So I am used to doing it, uh, but that is more of an instructional type thing. But I, I, but I still have tracks on my computer. So um, I just kind of applied that to this. Maybe I talk less and I don't, you know, I don't answer questions like I do in a seminar. But I kind of apply that to this live performance, and for some reason it seems to work. I tell a few stories. I, I tell how I got this gig with Mike and how long Mike and I have been playing together for you know many, many years with Genesis. And it's, it seems to go over very well. The audience responds well. It's a very interested audience. So, I mean, it, it's been great. I'm, I'm actually very surprised how well it goes over. And, and considering it's their first tour in 26 years in, in North America in the United States, I would. What are you sensing from the crowd? Are there are are there are they Mike and the Mechanics fans in particular? Are there a lot of Genesis fans? Or what 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 do you kind of see as the breakdown out there? Well, because when I go out there, if I walk out, somebody will yell out my name, and some guys go Genesis. You know, so <laughs> there's obviously Genesis fans, and there's hopefully there's some fans of me. But I think it's really a mixture because there are people who don't even know that Mike is from Mike and the Mechanics. I mean, Mike is from Genesis. And but there's, I would say you know half of the audience out there knows that, and at least half, and they relate that to Genesis, and that's that's part of the appeal. And so there's some there's some new fans out there. I think there are some people who are want to check this out to see well what is this Mike and the Mechanics? I remember there was a song called All I Need Is a Miracle, you know, because they were much they were actually quite a big group in in Europe. They sell very well in Europe, so I think they're trying to get. You know, get it going again in the United States. I always find that fascinating that that initially they didn't have as much success in the '80s in the UK, where they had more chart hits over here, and they kind of flipped around. So it's nice to see them coming 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 back here again. Yeah, absolutely, and it's a it's a very good band, and and I know two of the guys. I've met two of the guys. You know, over the years myself, the the guitarist named Anthony Drennan. He's from Ireland. And the, and the drummer uh, Gary Wallace and Gary's been with Mike for quite a long time, so it's nice to you know be around some people I know and and I know some of the crew members as well. The, the tour manager is the same one that uh, was the stage manager for Genesis and Bill Collins, and we both joined uh, Genesis back in 1978. So him and I go way way back. So very nice. And and you mentioned Anthony Drennan. What what I find fascinating about this being on tour with him. He essentially took your spot on the stage during the Calling All Stations tour, the the, the one tour between you know the the Turn It On Again one in 07 and the 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 uh, the We Can't Dance tour in in, uh, in 1992. Um, I, I, I'm just throwing that out there as kind of a fascinating circumstance that both people that have kind of filled that, for lack of a better term, the Steve Hackett Anthony Phillips lineage line on stage are now performing on the same tour together. Yeah, it is great. Um, and I had met um, Anthony actually uh, prior to that. He was playing with uh, um, this female, the three female singers, um, the Corps, mm-hmm. the Cutler and Irish um, Irish group. Uh, and I, I had seen him with them because they had been 
one of uh, one of the acts when the Genesis was doing an outdoor festival, and I had met him then. I had met him in Montreux, Switzerland, and then yeah, he after um, when Genesis wanted to put that group together where they had the singer Ray Wilson, they got Anthony Drennan on guitar, and um, you know because I was out with Phil Collins at the time, it was kind of an interesting thing, and you know we get along great, and he's an excellent guitarist, and. Um, yeah, and, and Gary I've met many times before, too. So, yeah, it's funny how it's kind of all come around. Sort of a full circle effect. We're talking with Daryl Sturmer here ahead of the show with Mike and the Mechanics, March 19th in Milwaukee. Speaking of Mike Rutherford, go into some detail on the the fundamental differences in technique and approach in your guitar and bass playing versus Mike's guitar and bass playing. Wow, that's a tough one. Um, <laughs> um I'd say, you know, Mike is on, well, first of all, his main, main instrument has been, you know, was the bass during the uh, the early Genesis years and playing with, you know, Steve was the main guitarist, so the bass was his main thing. But then it seemed like around 1978 when they did the end there, and then there were three, he became more of a guitarist as well. I mean, he kind of added that in. And so I think that, I don't know what to say what the difference is, but I would say, my approach is, is more from a, I, I hate to use the word, but more like a progressive rock jazz fusion kind of background, you know, because I had played with Jean-Luc Ponty back in 75, 76, and 77. That was more of a, a, a fusion or a jazz fusion uh, style format. And so that's what I come from. And Mike comes from more of a, an art rock uh, background. That's probably what I would say. And he's a very conceptual player. He works out a part, and he, he sticks with it, and, and it's great. You know, sometimes if I play a Mike Rutherford part and he plays it, I like the way he plays it better than I do. Because <laughs> he made it up. He has a certain way of tuning the guitar. His guitar is not a standard tuning like most of us. And uh, so he comes up with different ideas because of that tuning. Oh, really? What, what is his tuning? Go ahead. Oh, oh, yeah. What 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 uh, what type of tuning does he have? Well, first of all, when on on this tour, I've noticed, and I've noticed in Genesis tours, he has about three different tunings. But the one main tuning that he's he's with all the time, instead of the high E string, that that's a high D string. Hmm. So on one guitar, it's just one guitar is tuned differently, but that is his main tuning all the time. And then there's the occasional song like Turn It On Again, where he has a whole different tuning, where the A string is down to a B, the E string is down to a D. And, I mean, I don't even play that guitar, because I can't. <laughs> I don't even know how to play that guitar. And so, uh, and then there's some other song, though, that he has another tuning to, where he tunes the whole guitar down a whole step. You know, instead of it being an E chord, it's a D chord. So he has about three different tunings that he works with, so... And he does that because he also writes the song that way, and then he just sticks with that tuning. But right now, Mike's main tuning is standard, except for the high E string is down to a D. That's what he works with all the time. That's yeah, going to be an interesting one to listen to. Now, speaking of, of takes on on different approaches, you've you've been playing the Firth of Fifth solo well with Genesis, but also solo longer than we heard Steve Hackett play with Genesis back in the day, just because it goes, you know, you've been associated with 78, obviously more years involved. That was personally my introduction to that solo, listening to it on the Longs album that came out, a live album in 1993. 
it's it's a different version than than Steve's approach, but of course you're different guitarists. How did you when when you started performing it live with with Genesis? How did you kind of set out to approach that uh, approach that particular solo? Well, and I even asked Mike about that. I said, "Now, do you want this note for note?" Or he said, "Well, just there's there's certain key uh, signature things that you have to play that are kind of they're almost like a cue, but they're part of the almost the solo melody." So he says, "If you just get a couple of those key lines in there." Everything else can be your own. So that's how I approached it. I just play some of the things that have to be there, and then things that don't have to be there, I kind of go off on my own. And then those parts have become kind of standard for me. I, I don't even remember how the original solo went. But when I first learned it, I kind of I learned Steve's solo, and then I just kind of found the areas where I can put just you know more of my signature on it. And that's how it's, that's how it's developed. And I do that same thing in... I, I actually play that song in my band as well, so I've uh, been playing it for many years now. <laughs> and I've noticed even it's even evolved more since the since the '92 version that sticks in my head as that imprint. So you know, over the decades, you're going to add a little bit more flavor here and there there to this. Uh, to, to play off of that, how would you say your guitar playing has evolved even since your early days with Jean-Luc Ponty and from from your early Genesis Phil Collins era and just other earlier times in your life, the other acts in the Milwaukee area, to today, how would you say you have evolved guitar-wise? I think, I think generally um, I've, well, everybody matures anyway. Uh, they, they find that maybe they don't have to play as fast as they did before, and, or you use that more sparingly. I, I think I build a solo better today than I used to. When I was younger, you're just kind of going right at it right away. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, you're, you're doing what, what you can actually do, but I realize that you don't always have to show everything that you can do as you go along. So I think I'm a more of a musical uh, player today. I think my solos tend to be something that you can remember. They're not just a flurry of notes. I mean, they're, they're actually a specific thing. They are, uh, they have, they have, they're more melodic than they used to be. So I think over the years, I haven't slowed down. I mean, it hasn't been anything where I physically can't do it. It's just that now I'm just taking my time getting there. You make sure you start, say, on 5 and go to 10, as opposed to start on 8 and go to 10. So mm-hmm. that's that's kind of the way it's, it goes for me. We're talking with Daryl Sturmer here, uh, opening act for Mike and the Mechanics, March 19th. Of course, we've been giving away tickets uh, on Bob FM. Now, if, if you got a moment, I'd like to I, I kind of like to go through some of your guitar work, especially with Phil Collins, but over the years, maybe maybe get some insight if, if you got a little bit of time here. Okay. All right. Well, we'll start. Actually, I'm going to go back to Squonk because I, I had read about when, when you first started the Genesis gig, and, and I, I read somewhere that... that that squonk was more difficult than than you'd think. And listening to that song off of off a of trick of the tail, it sounds like okay. Well, there's like a Rickenbacker line. There's the there's the there's the the Taurus bass pedals and everything. But where? Do, how is that more difficult than one might expect at first listen? It's interesting because what what the difficulty is isn't that it's you know physically hard to play. What it is is what when I came from a jazz fusion background. To go into this more of a, I would say more of an English feel. That was that's where the difficulty came. Mm. That I had to kind of hold back because a lot of um, American guitarists, especially in 
the jazz or jazz fusion world tend to swing things a little bit, you know, almost like jazzy. Mm-hmm. And so you can't do that with that song. That song has to be almost like military kind of march, you know what I mean? It mm-hmm. has to be just a little bit, if, lack of a better word, a little stiffer than swinging, you know? Yeah. Uh, jazz musicians swing everything, and, and rock musicians tend not to. So that, you have to find this happy medium. So when I first started, I went, God, how do I play this? I didn't. <laughs> It was a matter of the feel of the song more than the actual notes. The notes themselves are not are not difficult. It's just it's just how you approach it and how you swing with it. So when I first started playing it, I had to kind of struggle with that feel because it's something that was very foreign to me. It was more English than it was American. Now, by the time Face Value, uh, the sessions for that came around, Phil Collins sort of bringing some swing back, if you will, in, 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 into a musical approach. There's there's obviously the, the more jazzy feel of that take on Behind the Lines, but also, you listen to that album, there's banjo on on Roof is Leaking, uh, and then Tomorrow Never Knows, to do a cover of that song, of all Beatles songs, to do a cover of that one and still have a psychedelic effect. Um, describe the, the approach to that album, how, you're, how you were taking that approach, was it kind of this opportunity to go back to jazz a little bit and maybe some more details on face value? Yeah, it, it was interesting because, you know, the first time, first of all, I didn't know really pro- much prior to that that Phil even wrote songs himself, other than, you know, like adding to co-writing in uh, Genesis and that. But all of a sudden, one day at, at a Genesis rehearsal, this would have been um, 1980, I was going to be going back. We were rehearsing in England, out in the country area, Surrey, England. And I was going to be going back into London to, you know, after rehearsal. And Phil Collins walks up to me and he says, are you going back into town? I said, yeah. He says, how are you getting there? And I said, well, I was going to get a taxi. He says, well, what? I'm going to take you. I want to play you something. And he actually put on this cassette, and it was In the Air Tonight. It was just his sort of like his demo version of In the Air Tonight. And it started playing, and he started singing, I Could Feel It Coming. And I'm thinking, wow, this is really good. And, I mean, you know, none of us would know that this was going to become a big hit signature song, but I knew immediately that this was a good song, and and it didn't necessarily mean it would get airplay, or it didn't necessarily mean it would be successful. So he played me that, and then he played me the second song, which was called I Missed Again. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was and that was an entirely different song. That was like a more of a, like an R and B song. So he had these two different things, and I was thinking, oh my God, this guy is actually a good writer of music and good composer. So that's how that began. And then he said, when he was going to do the album, he said, I, I'd like you to play guitar on it. So that all stemmed from just that one moment sitting in his car listening to his music and. The approach was all over the place. I mean, it wasn't like one style, like you said, it's not one style of music throughout. You had some real Beatles stuff, you had some R&B, you had like behind the lines of almost like a Michael Jackson swing version of that same song. And then you had In the Air Tonight, very ethereal type of atmospheric. So we had to just approach every one of these songs differently, which I find very challenging and, and really interesting. So that's that's how that all began. And and and, I, and I'm going to very quickly go back to Tomorrow Never Knows. I just find the recreation of psychedelia fascinating for the time. I mean, well removed from the from the late 60s, well removed from 
copious amounts of LSD or whatever was going on with, with the Beatles in Abbey Road. How do you guys go in and say, we're going to cover this and then pull it off like, um, like, like another psychedelic version? Yeah, well, I'll tell you how a lot of the stuff that you hear on their guitars going, you know, doing like almost India. Mm-hmm. What, how that's done is you actually play, now at that time we used tape. We didn't have computers or anything. You used tape. You actually play the song. Uh, on the recording backwards, and then you record, and then you play it forwards, and all the guitar stuff sounds backwards. <laughs> it kind of comes in and out backwards. Instead of a note sustaining and, and petering out, it starts that way, basically. It starts like nothing and then fades its way in. So that's how you did it back then. And so and that's how the Beatles did it, when they would do some of those odd odd things, those very atmospheric things, a lot of backwards tapes. So you, that's that's how we approach that song. The, the guitar, uh, and, and, and really the, the entire Hello, I Must Be Going, was seemed to have more consistency, if you will, as if, whereas yep. face value may be more experimental. Um, was, was that just Phil's approach to it? And then how did you go along with that for a more, again, consistent-sounding album? Yeah, well, that, that was, like you said, that was pretty much his, I mean, he's producing it, he's, you know, he's coming up with a concept, and I think you're right. I mean, the first album was, and, and this isn't a negative, but it was all over the place. You know, it was like a concept album showing all these different facets of, of him and what he likes. He likes R&B, he likes jazz, you know, he likes Indian music and all the stuff. I think Hello Must Be Going, like you said, I think that was more of a, sort of a, a more of a direction. Mm-hmm. Uh- so, But, you know, they both worked, I mean. There was there was obviously a, a couple hits on face value in New York tonight, and I think I missed again, right? And mm-hmm. I, I don't know if anything else got, but I know that uh, you can't hurry. Love was on Hello, I Must Be Going, and then he had another song like uh, I Don't Care Anymore, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. That was more like a, you know, like a powerful version of In New York Tonight, kind of, you know, exactly. And your songwriting really started to come out more by the time we got to know Jacket Required. And you're writing the bridges on Only You Know and I Know and Doesn't Anybody Stay Together Anymore. The one that, that probably stands out the most in terms of writing the music was your song, musically anyway, for I Don't Want to Know. What was influencing your songwriting circa 1984 while you, while you were working on that album to, uh, to create those parts for, uh, for, for the album? Well... The song, I Don't Want to Know, uh, came about as I was writing this song for myself as an instrumental, and I was thinking at that time of possibly doing a solo album. I thought it might be a good time to start. And so I had a bunch of songs, and I had them on a cassette, and I was on tour with, um, I'm not sure, if, I think I was on tour with Genesis, and I just wanted Phil to hear, um, oh, no, no, I know what it was, that what happened was um, I had been writing these songs on the, on the road, with Genesis, but then when Phil wanted to record this album, No Jacket Required, he called me up and he said, you know, I'd like you to come to England. He says, I'm doing demos, and he says, because um, he can't play guitar, he said, I'd like to have some guitar on the demos to see how it all works. So I flew over to England, stayed at his house, we worked in his studio, <clears throat> and while we were doing that, he hadn't finished all of the songs, he, had, he didn't have enough songs for an album yet. And I, just out of the blue, I just said, you know, I have this song called F Song, because it was in the key of F. And I, I just want, want you to hear what you think of it. It wasn't, it wasn't any approach of, like, I'm, I think he's going to do this song. Mm-hmm. 
and I just wanted to hear what he thought of it. He liked it, and he said, you know, I would, I would like to put lyrics to this song. And that's the song that became I Don't Want to Know. And so he came up with the lyrics. I had the music, and it got on the album. And then actually uh, a couple years later, I actually put it on one of my, my first solo album because I didn't do my first solo album until 1986, 87. So that's how that actually came about. And the other songs, like, um, I don't want, um, what was the song? Um, Only You Know When I Know and Doesn't Anybody Stay Together Anymore. Um, those songs came about because he didn't have a bridge already, so he asked me if I would come up with something. So that's how that actually came about. And that all happened over there in England at his house. And then he finally had enough songs for a new album. And and what's interesting listening to that is I I do hear more of a, even with even the bridges within those songs, there seems to be more of a, I don't know, it, 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 it moved, the, the bridges kind of move along a little bit more, and I don't, they have more of that, uh, almost a swing, not quite, but maybe there, you can. I can almost hear the influences of that of that jazz fusion sound from the '70s, even creeping out just a little bit in the, in, in those songs. If, if, if was that kind of guiding your approach to writing at that point? Well, uh, he was influencing me <laughs> for sure, you know. And, uh, and so I was, you know. And in fact, even though there's there's three songs on that album that I was a co-writer of. Um, those three songs that we mentioned. There's actually a fourth song that did not get on the album, but became side B of one of the singles. I, I can't remember if it was side B of Susudio or side B of Only You Know When I Know, when there was actually side B <laughs> of a single. And it was called, um, uh, it's called I Like The Way. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and that one I co-wrote with him as well. Okay. It did a little bit more than The Bridge. Um, but that got on side B. And, you know, what's great about being on side B as far as that, at least as a writer, if that record sells, you make money too, even if no one hears that side B. <laughs> it's really interesting. Still, the publishing helps out with that. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, because the record sells. Exactly. I was just taking, I was taking an online course uh, about the Rolling Stones, and noted that's how Mick Jagger and, and Keith Richards were getting money. They made sure one of their songs was on the B side, they got they got paid as a result of that, and that helped out early in their careers. So fascinating that that it worked out that way. You ended up having a much bigger success going forward to 1989, and it was a hit in 1990, and then with the Grammy, something happened on the way to happen. What was your contribution to that off of? But seriously, uh, well, Phil had come up with the introduction of the song, and then came up with the verses, but he didn't have um, a specific. Uh, chorus chords, and he didn't have the bridge in that song. So he asked me to uh, see if I could come up with something. That song almost didn't make the record. It was really? one of those things that was just sitting there. He couldn't finish it. He just couldn't think of something to do. So I came up with these chords for the chorus. I came up with the bridge chords, and I came up with this this bass line that was being played that's played on the chorus. So um, all that kind of contributed that, and all of a sudden it became a song that he that became like the second single. I think the first single on that was um, Another Day in Paradise. Mm -hmm. And then the second single off of that record was Something Happened on the Way to Heaven. Fascinating. Uh, your, your guitar approach on, by, by the time of But Seriously, and I, I'm, and, and particularly I'm, I'm going to note the call and, what I almost call call and response, like that's just the way it is. You hear some of that in the refrain there. Uh -huh. 
Um, you you have that approach, but then I also hear like at the end of "Take Me Home," where the where your guitar seems to be kind of tracking the melody, but not exactly. There's kind of this fluttering effect, of probably probably the the, the finger offs. I'm, I'm guessing, or finger-ons, or, or hammer-ons, I should yeah. be saying, uh, a little bit there as well. Uh, I hear some that's rhythmic, some melodic. You can go to, I mean, You Can't Hurry Love, and there's definitely a rhythmic approach, very rhythmic, but you hear that throughout the rest. So what's your approach to those kinds of guitar parts where you're just kind of accompanying rhythmic, melodic? How, how do you approach those? Yeah, well, in, in um, the song uh, Take Me Home, what we were actually trying to get, at least near at the end of the song, when it's kind of fading out and you know, chorus is going over and over again, we were almost trying to get almost as if it was like a bagpipe playing. Mm-hmm. You know, just trying to play something that a bagpipe would play without using bagpipes. Mm-hmm. You know, and it has as this effect on it called chorus, a chorus effect. This is a an effect that guitarists use a lot. And we just, it's kind of a, a wobbly kind of sound. It makes it a little bit in tune, out, to, out of tune, in tune, out of tune. And that's how I, you know, I just come up with it. It's, it's not like that I even give it a lot of thought. I just play this and then Phil says, yeah, I like that. You know, so let's, let's start recording that. Sometimes he starts recording me right away before I actually know what I'm going to play because he thinks, and he's right, that um, sometimes the best idea is one that's just instinctive. Mm. And you just start playing, and boom, and also he records it, and uh, he'll keep most of what you've done the first time around. You might come back and say, I'd like to try something different here, but generally about 75% of your performance is in that first take, and then you might come back if you've made a little mistake or you didn't like what you played. You might kind of punch in another another effect or another uh, sound in there or something. But, you know, it's all basically instincts. It's, it's not really thought about intellectually how you're going to do it. You just do it. And uh, I, I think that's what he likes. He likes that, that, you know, not only can you technically play, but you also can come up with a concept quickly, you know, just something that's instinctive. Talking with Daryl Sturmer, opening for Mike and the Mechanics, March 19th, Pabst Theater in Milwaukee, uh, here with uh, Bob FM 99.9. Talking about what what equipment you used over the years, and you mentioned the chorusing effect. I hear more of the chorusing on on the early to mid-80s Phil Collins material in particular. It seems like almost all of the recorded guitar work there, and obviously some on your live concerts as well, seem to have a lot of chorusing effect or some kind of effect. Less so by the time you get to Butt Seriously, you start to hear, at least I'm hearing more of a pure guitar tone. What were some of the effects, kind of your go-to effects at the time? Why did it change as we approached like the 1990s or so? And in particular, some of the, some of the, the really, like the intro, outro, find a way to my heart. I hear that, even though that's Butt Seriously, there's a lot of effects in there. Kind of describe your the, the, the equipment you would use to get those effects and why it changed over the years. Yeah, I think what happens is is that when you're in the 80s, there's a certain sound that that is like, you know, that that's popular at the time or it's because it's new. You know, something like this chorus effect is new, especially in the 80s. It wasn't it wasn't even around back in the 70s. So as soon as you get like a new toy, you know, you start using it and then you start overusing it. Um, most of the time. I have like three basic effects that I use, and one is uh, a kind of an overdrive or a distortion, and that can be very variations of. And then there's the chorus effect, but then you can also use 
another effect that's like uh, an octave, like an octave lower. So you have your regular guitar sound, and then you have a, an octave lower sound underneath that. And then a lot of times I use a, a delay, either an analog delay or a digital delay. That's It's more or less like, you know, you hit a note and, and it comes back at you. And those are sort of like the main type of effects that I've used, like the, the beginning of Find a Way to My Heart is like this octave low thing. It starts the song. It sounds like a, what is that instrument? The, uh, like a didgeridoo? Like from, yes, yes. Tell you? Mm-hmm. That's, that's actually a guitar playing with a, an octave unit on it. And then it has a little bit of delay on it, so when it trails off. And um, like anything else, like today, if you're listening to a pop music, it seems like everybody's using the auto-tuner sound, mm-hmm. which just annoys the heck out of me. Because most of the time, people are using it now because they can't sing. Whereas when it first started, it, it became it was sort of like an effect. Like I think Cher used it on a song, and it was more of an effect. It wasn't that she couldn't sing in tune. And uh, Shakira used it on some early stuff. So it was kind of an interesting effect. Now it's become just part of everybody's song everybody's using it and they're turning up the auto tune so high that that's the sound you hear. It sounds like, like a robot basically. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, these, a lot of the the people that I don't, I don't say they're like singer singers are just singing through an auto tuner because they don't have much of a voice and it'll at least keep them in tune. (laughs) And everybody, I mean, I would do it if I was doing a demo say, because I'm not a good singer. I would just sing into an auto tuner and say, here's, here's my melody. And here's a, I'm going to give this to a good singer. Mm-hmm. But for me to hear it all the time on everybody's song, it kind of drives me crazy. <laughs> it's a very, very overused effect. And so it's like guitarists using a chorus pedal for, for every solo they, they play. I wouldn't want to hear that either. <laughs> so gotcha. Anyway, it gets into that, that uh, area. So what happens is basically certain effects kind of get outdated after a while, and then you don't hear them as much. Sometimes they come back a little bit as almost kind of a cool retro sound. Mm-hmm. So pretty soon I hope the autotune thing starts going away and you just rely on good singers. It would be very nice nice to hear that. Uh, that absolutely. Speaking of, of your your instrument, the vocal instrument, or in your case, the guitar instrument, your your guitars have, have you've played several types of guitars over the years. Seen a lot of Fenders. Uh, there's been some Gibsons. I, I know nowadays you uh, Godin. Is that am I pronouncing it correctly? Yeah. Godin guitars nowadays. They, uh, oh, they oh. say Godin, but um, most people say Godin. Yeah. Godin. Okay, there we go. And then, but then even over the years there've been other ones. There was the status bass play bass. I think you had on, on the Mama tour. I know the Steinbergers were being used a lot. Circa Invisible Touch. Um, what, what kind what drove you to go to a different guitar here or there? Um, and I'll have a sub question after that if necessary, but, but go ahead just to describe your, why you chose the guitars you've chosen. Yeah. Well, it seems like for, for most of the, you know, most of the, um, years, especially like, uh, the late eighties, night and then, or nineties, I was using a Fender Stratocaster, uh, for most of it. And all of a sudden what happened is you get to a point where you just, Here's something else, and you play it, and you go, oh, I like this. And I'm playing the Godin guitar now. And then what was nice about that is I bought one, and I really liked it. It has different pickups than a Fender Strat. A Fender Strat has single coil pickups, and then a Godin guitar or Gibsons will have humbucker pickups, so they're a little thicker sounding. Mm-hmm. I guess 
I just enjoyed the sound a little bit more. I wanted a thicker sound than I used to have. It's nothing, I'm not against my, I will use my Fender guitar on an album, but right now I'm going for the Godin guitars, and um, the, the company then approached me um, about endorsing them, and I thought, well, since I've already bought the guitar, and I like it. I have no problem endorsing this instrument. So now I am an endorser of those those guitars. And I don't have to play them exclusively, but it seems like I am. Mm-hmm. And so for right now, or for these next few years, I'm gonna I'm satisfied playing that guitar. And if I have a certain song that needs the Fender Stratocaster sound, I will do that. Uh, so that it's really that simple. It's just like... After a while, you start kind of reaching for another sound that maybe you don't have. So you, you, you go that direction. Well, the, I go back to the Steinbergers quickly, on, and it was still on the guitars, to see that it was both you and Mike were using those bass and electric guitars a lot. Again, I, I mentioned circa 85, 86, uh, up, up through the maybe around 1990 or so, and I, I saw it. Use a little bit in the in the We Can't Dance documentary. At least uh, Mike Rutherford was using using the bass there at oh. that point. Uh, what what was the appeal of the Steinberger? I know it's a, it's quite the different guitar in terms of body and in terms of the, of the headless stock on it. But yeah. what what made you guys essentially? Why did Genesis dive fully in to Steinberger for a little while? Yeah, um, I think what it was is it was something new. It was something different. Uh, you can't bend the neck on these things. In other words, these things are so solid, you could basically put them on the floor and stand on them, and still that neck that neck will not move because it's made. It's all like this. I think it's graphite. Mm. I can't remember. Yeah. But it's it's this solid guitar, and those guitars are very hard to to put out of tune. You know, every guitar and you know, the neck moves a little bit. The strings move. Well, they had a certain. You know, there was no headstock on it, so. The string you had to put their specific um, Steinberger strings on it, and the thing is locked in, and they didn't move. So even when you use the tremolo, the tremolo bar, the vibrato bar, you could just, you know, play with that, and and it would come back completely in tune every time. So that was part of the uh, the appeal of that guitar. They sounded good, and they were just very very practical. You could bring them on a plane you know, <laughs> because they're so small. You just put them in the overhead bin. Uh, you probably could bring them on a plane today, even you know, even though that's very difficult today. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's why we played it. They sounded good, and they also had a synthesizer pickup, so you could plug them into uh, any kind of like synthesizer, so you could blend that sound in. And Mike was uh, writing some music that that had that. So, <clears throat> so that's what happened. It just uh, kind of organically came about. And that's what we ended up using. Mm, fascinating. Uh, we're talking with Daryl Sturmer, uh, the opening act for Mike and the Mechanics, Thursday, March 19th at the Pabst Theater in Milwaukee. We're going to wrap up in a moment here, but I got just a few more questions to, to close out here. The first one's more of a alternate history, if you will. If you'd not been asked to audition to join Genesis in the 1978 tour, someone, someone else gets the gig, and you, you never hook up with them at all. It, 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 the paths diverge. How do you think your career would have been different? Is there any particular act that was active in the 80s, 90s, the 2000s to today that you would have liked to have performed with? How do you see your career had the whole Genesis thing not happened in the late 70s? I, you know, I tell you, that's a good question. I, and I do think about that every once in a while. I probably would have more of a, if you would want to call it a solo career. I mean, I'd have a more popular 
solo career. Um, I think I would have went 100% working on that as opposed to, you know, going on tour for, with Genesis for the last, you know, uh, from 78 to 2007. I was out with Gino Vanelli in 79. And then, I mean, and Phil Collins had tours in the middle of there. So basically, I was more focused on that part of my career, and um, which has been great. You know, it's been a great career. But I think if I didn't have that, I would have probably been diving in, you know, headfirst into a solo career. So I'd probably have more solo albums. I would probably be more known as a solo artist than the guitarist that plays with Phil Collins and Genesis. So I don't know how that would go. You never know. Uh, it might have worked great, and but I'll never know. I'll never know how that worked. And the history turned out pretty well as is, so let's just keep it as as, as it was. Uh, mm-hmm. Last autumn, uh, you were involved with an event, Rock Be Their Voice. Describe a little bit about uh, that for those of us that aren't familiar with it. Yeah, that was uh, that's all about basically the awareness and of how bullying, you know, turns into more than just bullying, and it it turns into people, um, you know, people who, for instance, people who have abuse animals turn into something else like you know most of your <laughs> you want to say most of your serial killer types if you ever look at their past they've been animal abusers so a lot of this stuff will will just evolve and turn into something else and then they'll start abusing people or a, a husband will abuse a wife that's how that whole somebody when somebody asked me if i'd be part of this concert i said sure you know i mean this all makes sense to me and that's what that Rock be their voice be what what was all about okay and 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 is there ways people can still help out with with that cause or something similar to that uh, if if they hear about that and go hmm I'm interested right I, I think you know you go to their website I, you know I don't have that website in mm-hmm. front of me um, but I mean if you put rock be their voice I'm sure that would come up in Google and that'll give people more of an idea how they can either be involved or if they can be part of the charity or something because that's what I was doing. I was I was just being part of the charity, gotcha. and you know of, of awareness. So I think it was a great cause. Um, this is a problem for not only teenage kids; it's a problem for animals that people abuse animals, and it's a problem for where those bullying type people go in their life. So, which then affects the whole society. Our last last big question has to do with the. New album, if you will. I saw there was some. You were you were tagged in some Facebook uh, pictures in February, and there was some some drumming action and such. And there was talk about a, a new album, possibly. Oh, what 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 would this uh, what would this possibly be? Yeah, I, I think you know too much about me. <laughs> I mean, I've quite been stalking too much on Facebook anyway. But but yeah, it, it showed up there on on your on your Facebook regular page the the artist page and and what what is this what what kind of material are you looking at to to do the follow-up to go yeah right and it's not a secret yeah and what <laughs> what it is is this album is going to be unlike my other albums in, in the in this sense of i'm not doing any original songs on this record i'm well if i do one this one's going to be a, basically a cover album I'm, i believe i'm going to call it breaking cover and it's like me coming out and doing other people's songs, and not not only other, but Genesis as well. I'm going to do some Genesis vocal music. I'm going to do a Shock the Monkey's going to be on it. I'm doing Steely Dan's Asia. I'm doing a Message in a Bottle by The Police, Layla by Eric Clapton. I'm just doing a combination of Genesis songs, covers, and covers by other people that I really admire and, and like. 
Jeff Beck, and um, <clears throat> that's what the whole album's going to be. I'm not sure if I'm going to spread it out into two albums because I have so much music. I have to figure out what I'm going to put on the album. And then there might be some bonus tracks down the line that I can't fit on one CD. And uh, so that's what it's going to be. And I might even cover one of my songs. (laughs) But um, I I would take one of my songs from an earlier album and approach it differently. So I'll cover myself as well. Very nice. And what's the time frame on, on the album again? Well, I started the album prior to this tour, and then I'm going to go back into the studio in April. And I'm hoping that it'll be finished in May, so hopefully June, July, come out sometime around there. Very good. Well, I thank you very much for this interview. This has been very insightful for for a Genesis and Phil Collins fan like myself. I learned a lot in in the, in the course of these last forty two minutes, and I hope people listening are learning a lot as well. So have fun with the tour. We're looking forward to the show in Milwaukee, and hopefully at some point we can get you over into the western part of the state up here in Eau Claire as well. I'd love to. Awesome. Thanks, and take care. Have a good tour, and uh, we'll we'll see you in Milwaukee. All right. Thanks very much. So that was my interview from March of 2015 with Daryl Sturmer. Now, the interview from September of 2018. Getting ready for the Phil Collins concert, the Not Dead Yet Live concert, coming to Target Center in Minneapolis on October 21st. Part of the part of the tour of a, a little bit of tour of America coming up here pretty soon, and we have Daryl Sturmer with us, longtime guitarist for Phil Collins, of course, touring gar- guitarist for Genesis. Now, obviously, Phil Collins has had some concerts. Over over the past several months, even the announcement came back in late 2016. So, from your angle, being his longtime guitarist, how did this all come together? How did you learn that Phil's really going to go back out on tour live? Well, uh, I remember that uh, we started doing a couple things. Uh, in 2016, we were on the U.S. Open uh, on television doing just one song, In the Air Tonight, and Easy Lover. We also did that song, and we did some... We did some radio in England, and we did some uh, we did some concerts in Paris and Germany, and then all of a sudden uh, we found ourselves going to South America, <laughs> and then it seems like it's just just uh, you know snowballing from there. And all of a sudden, I hear that uh, months ago, let's do a U.S. tour, and I thought, fantastic, you know. So it it just keeps going. I don't. You know, you don't know from month to month whether this is going to continue on, but it does. It seems like he's having a good time. His son is playing drums with us. I think that has a lot to do with it as well, and he's doing a fantastic job. So that's what happened. Um, It's always a surprise when it happens, which is fantastic. And in particular, you mentioned Nick Collins drumming. What is the musical dynamic on stage with especially the band members to be having a Collins drumming? And, and t- typically when you perform with, with, with Phil, either in Genesis or solo, it would be Chester Thompson or somebody else would be drumming back there. Usually not Phil because he's singing up front. Well, now you got a Collins, but it's his son. What's that like? It's amazing because, you know, when, it, when he first talked about doing that, I thought, well, I wonder if he's going to be able to handle it because it's a big you know, it's a large group to handle, and we've been around for a long, long time. There's a lot of veteran players up there. And he stepped in, and within about a month of kind of playing with them just in rehearsal, I, I thought, this this kid just, like, went from from 5 to 10 in, like, one month, and it was just unbelievable. So it's, it's great. You know, it's funny how much he sounds like Phil on the drums. Phil definitely has a style. 
the way he hits the drums, his phrasings. He sounds just like him. That's what's amazing about it. So, I mean, it makes sense. He's got the gene, and he's just been watching his father play, you know, ever since he was born. But, you know, back in um, one of, in our 2004-05 tour, we were, he was just a little, little kid, I think four or five years old, and he used to have a little drum kit that he used to bring and put backstage that would have a room for him. And we used to hear him playing. It used to be amazing how good he was at four and five years old. And we, uh, we, we never thought that this kid would be, you know, playing with us <laughs> at that point. So he did, and, and he's, doing, he's doing a fantastic job. And, you know, it's a totally different kind of drumming from Chester Thompson, but it's also, you know, on top of that, it's a great story because it's like Phil has, you know, handed it over to his son. You know, because Phil is not playing drums anymore, you know, because his, he's had trouble with his, um, you know, he had back surgery and stuff, so it's very hard for him to do that. But his son is, like, taking the place of him, and it's pretty pretty amazing. What is the musical chemistry with the rest of the longtime band members? Of course, Lee Sklar is on the tour, Brad Cole, Luis Conte. I mean, you played with them, with Phil, for a long right. time. So what? how has the chemistry evolved over, well, now the decades, really, to this tour? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because um, basically the way we play our music together, we, we, we can talk in shorthand. We can just say, hey, you know, we can just say something that maybe wouldn't make sense to someone else. And everybody knows what each other's going to be doing or with the style that they play. The funny thing about having Nick is he caught on like immediately. <laughs> and I think, I think because he's also been around us forever, too, because, you know, he's always been around the band. You know, before we go up on stage, a lot of times we do like uh, Phil calls it a huddle. We kind of get together and somebody says something. It's almost like a prayer, you know. It's not so much a religious thing, but it's just something that we do. And Nick was part of that ever since he was four and five years old. <laughs> he would come backstage and do that with us. So he's kind of become part of us as well. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've you know, we've been together so long, meaning that the rest of the guys, especially Leland Sklar and uh, Brad Cole, the, the keyboard player. Uh, we've been together for a long time. I mean, we, it's, it feels like it's our band. <laughs> there's, there's no other way to do this but with us, you know. Although we did have a, you know, um, a Nathan East on bass for a while. He played a couple tours with us, mm-hmm. and Leland Sklar was off doing some other things. So, But now Leland's back again, of course, and uh, ever since, you know, 2005 or whatever it was. So... We're, we're back to the same old band again, and it's really nice. And how, how are the arrangements evolving with this tour? I mean, some of the some of the keys obviously get lowered a little bit, yeah. but but arrangement wise, uh, it, it, is that the band putting that together? Is that Phil kind of driving that? And what? How are the songs evolving this time? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, we're, we're playing the songs fairly, pretty much like we did before. Um, we might add something here and there. Either Phil will ask let's do something else here or else one of us will suggest it. He seems a lot more open to other people suggesting things. Um, so we do. I, I think generally the songs are staying fairly close to what they used to be. But then when you listen to an old recording of us, we thought, oh, we did change this. We don't even realize we've changed mm-hmm. things. It feels like the same to us. But then you listen to a recording. Not only has the key changed, you know, most of the songs are about a half step to a whole step lower than they were before due to Phil's voice lowering. But, you know, other than that, I mean, to us it feels the same, but 
then I listen back, and there is a little difference in the arrangement that we didn't even realize we did. It just kind of evolved. Do you find a favorite song to perform on this tour? And maybe has that has that changed over time? Is there a song that you prefer performing now that maybe it was a different one on a prior tour? Sure. You know, there's... Um, you know, it's really a hard one. It's like saying which one of your children are your favorites. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, um, you know, it still is amazing to me how well In the Air Tonight goes over and, and how much we enjoy playing it. In the Air Tonight is probably one of my favorite songs that I can say throughout the career. And maybe that's because it was the first song that Phil did on his own in a solo uh, sense um, when we did Face Value. And that song still... Now, see, there's a song that has evolved. Um, it's mainly because of the introduction of the song has evolved a little bit, and some of the little parts in the middle have evolved, but essentially the same song. But I'd, I'd say that's one of my favorite songs to play. You mentioned Face Value and reading Not Dead Yet. One of the things that stood out to me in the in the 80s section of, of the book was the busyness of Phil Collins and especially there was that period around 85, 86, where he's, do, he's working every tour. It's like he's not stopping. But what stood yeah. out was the follow-up to face value, and that was, hello, I must be going. And typically there would be a, a bit of a write-up of, okay, we went into the studio, worked on this song or maybe some anecdote. And he wrote, quite frankly, that he couldn't remember anything about it because he was so busy working right. at that time. I'm going, my gosh, that's your second solo album, and you have no memory of that from that time. <laughs> so... Maybe fill in some of the blanks. What was the recording session like for that album, putting together the music and the songs? Yeah, you know, to me, it was very similar to putting together Face Value, like you said, although he doesn't remember that. Um, <laughs> I do remember that. And the, the funny thing is, him and I were, in a sense, playing in the same band. I mean, we were doing a Genesis tour, then we'd have a year off, then we'd do a Phil Collins tour, then have a year off. And since I was playing touring with Genesis as well, we had a similar schedule, except for he did all these things in between. I think that's why he can't remember. I mean, to me, the sessions weren't that different. It's just that he doesn't remember them. Um, you, know, I, I, you know, I found the whole process really a lot of fun. Uh, the, first, the first one was exceptional because it was the first time, but uh, the second was very similar. And then, of course, the third being No Jacket Required, that was maybe a bit different. Um, totally different style almost of music, a little bit more pop oriented mm -hmm. uh, than I, I thought the first album and the second one really had a real combination. It was almost like a concept album, many different styles. You know, when I first heard In the Air Tonight was on a demo, Phil played it for me in his car. And then the second song he played me was I Missed Again. Those songs couldn't be any different. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? They are just so far apart. And um, that's the way the album was. I mean, to me, every song is a very different from each other, don't you think? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you know, there's R&B stuff on there, and then there's progressive stuff on there. There's, uh, you know, a lot of ballads, a lot of up songs. I mean, it's just, it's just an amazing album, especially Face Value. Was was there any sense going into that second album, then, just one more focus back back in 82, was there any sense, because, again, Face Value had, had, had the two hits you just mentioned, Genesis right. was starting to have a bit of a different appeal in the wake of Abacab and going on the big tour, the Three Sides Live tour. So at yeah. this point, what was, 
mean, in this, in the, again, in this zone between the first solo album getting played on college radio compared to four years later and all of the success of No Jacket Required, what was there a sense of we need to take a certain approach with this second solo album? I would, what were the expectations going into this? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that pressure was more on him than me. Um, I, I think the single from uh, uh, No Jacket, no, not No Jacket, um, the second album. What's it called again? Oh, yeah, Hello, I Must Be Going. <laughs> um, I, think that, I think that album um, had, wasn't it Canterbury Love became the yeah. single from that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Was there another one? <laughs> That was the only big hit in America. I mean, I don't care anymore. I cannot believe it's true. I know those were those were singles, but right. you can't hurry. Love was the was the big hit. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. I I think um, it wasn't a disappointment to anybody, as far as I'm as far as I know. But yeah, I I don't I. There's always that expectation because you know when you get such an, a hit album as that first one, it's really hard to follow up. It's like you know Godfather too. In that in that sense, that 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 movie did live up to the first movie mm-hmm. so you hope that your second album does the same thing um yeah i don't know i really don't know what his expectation was but i'm sure it was i hope i do as well it, and sometimes it's not commercially as well or you know uh, financially as well it's, it's about artistically did i live up to the first album i think i think he did you know it, it's just a little different than the other ones but there's some great songs on there there's that ballad called um, uh, Why Can't It Wait. That's mm-hmm. a really beautiful ballad. I, I heard that there was some other artists that wanted to record that song as well. Um, I think um, Against All Odds was done, wasn't that done around the same time? This is funny, I'm asking you. <laughs> <laughs> it, because, it, yeah, I, I, uh, what, the demo was around that time, or some, it was in yes. that same general era, yeah. Right. I think it was called Take a Look at Me Now when it was a demo, and then it t- turned into Against All Odds, which has the same lyric to it, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I don't, you know, it's hard for me to say what, what he was thinking. Overall, what is your favorite musical memory with Phil Collins, uh, whether it's in a concert, a tour, recording a song, whatever it is, what is it? And you're not done yet, because obviously there's more memories to be made, but what, in your career, going back to the 70s with him, what's your favorite me- musical or favorite memory overall? Well, overall, my favorite, I would say my favorite Phil Collins tour was the No Jacket Required tour, because that was like a surprise to everybody. Um, we didn't know that, first of all, that that album was going to end up with, I think, five Grammys. It sold so incredibly well. We went out and we would play venues and they'd say, oh, we should have booked this place for two nights because they didn't know it was going to sell like it did. So it was a big surprise. I think that was my favorite tour overall. Leland Sklar and bass as well. Uh, that was the first time him and I worked together. Uh, in the studio on No Jacket Required, and then we toured together. We found out that we were both born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, <laughs> which was kind of a nice thing, too. And um, so I think that was my favorite overall tour. I'm not saying that it was the best tour, because sometimes, you know, certain people, it's just your experience, as opposed to w- whether the quality was as good as the next tour, I don't know. But it was a Kind of, a, I think it was because it was a big hit and it was a surprise, meaning the album as well as the tour. In terms of touring, and obviously the tour dates are all set for America, 
Are you hoping at some point to be able to perform at the new Bucks Arena, the Fiserv Forum in your hometown in Milwaukee, now that it's just opened as of about well, a little over about a couple weeks ago? Right. I, I, I would. You know, um, apparently they did try to book it, but I think it's either it was either already taken. At the time that we could actually play, I was told that it was already booked up so we couldn't actually play there. On one hand, I would love to come to my hometown and play. On the other hand, I'm going to have 250 guests, you know. <laughs> it's going to be the biggest hassle, that, you know, to have so many people because every time I play Milwaukee, not only relatives, you got friends, and then there are people who are, you know, that you associate on a business level that you're trying to get tickets for. You know, it becomes a big, big hassle. But on the other hand, I love playing my hometown, and every time we have, it's been a great great experience so it, it, it's a mixed mixed feeling about whether we're playing here or not you're going to be playing in manitowoc actually coming up a little bit later on describe this performance you're going to be doing with your band with an orchestra in manitowoc right right um we've done we've done a few of these before um out of state um dip, with different orchestras like the florida orchestra in uh tampa florida we've done omaha we played there a couple nights with an orchestra what it is is basically um my band playing not only well we played basically most of the songs are the music of genesis or phil collins and i threw in a couple of my originals in there and i orchestrated uh four out of the 12 i believe we played 12 songs and um i got different orchestrators for some of the other songs because i didn't want to have to do the whole thing myself but i did do four of them and um it's basically the music i would call it just the music of genesis and it's my interpretations of those. Some are very close to Genesis. Some are not the way they done it, did it. But um, I, I've always felt that Genesis music lent itself to orchestration. Mm. You know, you could hear an orchestra playing their stuff, especially things that are especially uh, led by maybe Tony Banks' influence. Mm-hmm. So that's what it is. And, uh, you know, I, I, my, I have a five-piece band. I have a singer and then keyboards, bass, drums, and myself. And it's always worked out very well. And they're just not a background to me. You know, like a lot of times bands will play with an orchestra and the, and the orchestra's just playing kind of long whole notes, just kind of, they're just kind of there. What I like to do is, is actually include them in the orchestration. So they are playing a lot of the, the lines or the fast lines that I play. Um, they are... are they have to be there. You know, it's not It's not like we're putting them as backdrop. It's not just wallpaper. They are actually part of the whole thing. So I, I think it's going to be great. Yeah, hopefully you'll be able to have a similar. I, we'd love to have you have a similar performance here. Have the new uh, Pablo Center for the Confluence, which is opening up actually this Saturday here in Eau Claire. Wow. It's a great new performing arts venue. Uh, beautiful, beautiful place. It was, I think it's designed by someone who did or worked on Orchestra Hall in the Twin Cities. So hopefully we'll be able to have you come over here and do something similar here in Eau Claire at some point down the road. Oh, of course I'd love to do that. You know, I these kind of uh, concerts to me are kind of special because they're far between but every once in a while whenever you do it it's always it's a great experience and it's always it's interesting to be standing in front of a you know a 40 to 50 to 60 piece orchestra when you're hearing this music and it always goes over so no of course i'd love to play there i mean 
if you know somebody, just book me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll work on our contacts over here in the Chippewa Valley. So, But yeah. f- first, we'll see you a little bit further west over at Target Center. I already got my tickets, and I hope more people listening right now get their tickets as well. Not Dead Yet Live, October 21st, 8 p.m. show. That's a Sunday at Target Center. Daryl Sturmer, thanks once again for talking to us, and we'll see you at the concert and hope to chat with you again some point down the road. Great. Thanks very much. We'll, we'll see you there. Daryl Sturmer there, his interview from September of 2018. Now, if you want to keep up with what he's doing, and he is performing around and about on his own with other musicians and every so often with Phil Collins, and who knows, maybe one day again with Genesis Live. I haven't completely ruled out a possibility of future live concerts from the group. Well, you can go to DarylSturmer.com. D-A-R-Y-L-S-T-U-E-R-M-E-R. DarylSturmer.com. Also follow along on social media, on Facebook, and learn what uh, Daryl Sturmer is up to nowadays. This has been the latest edition of the Genesis series of Got Time for a Quick Story. Thanks, as always, to my employer, Greatest Hits 98.1 Radio in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, for providing facilities to help make this podcast happen. You can listen to a lot of artist interviews that I do uh, that are similar to the ones you hear on Got Time for a Quick Story at GreatestHits981.com if you go to interviews. Also, you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn. Rate the podcast, preferably higher, because that helps get the word around about this podcast. Got time for a quick story? I'm Luke Anthony.